Welcome to the Global Research News Hour in the summer. The Global Research News Hour is a special radio collaboration funded by the Center for Research on Globalization and produced in collaboration with campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg on occupied Anishinaabegaki on the homeland of the Métis and the historical territory of the Nahiawak and the Nakota. My name is Michael Welch. Meng Wanzhou was the chief financial officer for Huawei. In December of 2018, she was arrested in Vancouver International Airport on the warrant of U.S. authorities. They believed that Huawei had dealings with Iran, causing a bank they did business with to violate U.S. sanctions. China became furious with the move. A process is underway to determine if the evidence is sufficient to allow extradition to the United States. On today's Global Research News Hour, we're sharing a panel discussion put together on the internet. It was meant to be a campaign to free Meng Wanzhou. Our panelists include Christopher Black, an international criminal lawyer based in Toronto, Sheila Zhao, co-founder of Pivot to Peace organization, and the moderator and host, Cyrus Jansen. The panel will be discussing the legal developments, the geopolitical context of the arrest of Meng on Prime Minister Trudeau's watch, and the rise in anti-Asian racism in Canada, promoted in part by mainstream media and political party demonization. We'll go into that discussion right now. Here is Christopher Black on the Global Research News Hour. Thanks very much. It's a great honor to be here and to, to join everybody else in this panel. It's a very important one. And I'm, I was assigned to talk about the legal issues and what's involved and in why Meng was arrested in the first place. So, um, I guess I'll start out by saying that we object to the arrest and detention of Meng Wanzhou because it's based on a U.S. extradition request um, that was made for political reasons. The objective being to use her detention as a bargaining chip in trade negotiations between, between China and the, and the United States as harassment of and an attempt to discredit Huawei, to prevent it competing with US and EU tech companies, and as an attempt to enforce the illegal economic embargo or economic warfare being conducted by the United States against Iran. It was meant to send a message and as a warning to others. Now, President Trump made it clear in a statement days after her arrest that he would certainly intervene in the case if it led to a better outcome for the U.S. in trade negotiations. Her lawyers rightly called this abhorrent, for it proves that Meng is in fact held hostage to force China to bend to its will. The fact that Prime Minister Trudeau was made aware of the American request days before her arrest confirming John Bolton's statement to the same effect, also establishes that the matter was discussed at a high political level before the request was sent to Canada. Further, her arrest took place during a period of increasingly hostile and aggressive propaganda and actions against China by the United States, Canada, the EU, Australia, and Britain, the former colonial powers except for Canada. Although you can view Canada as a colonial power with respect to its own indigenous peoples. 
It has also to be seen in light of the illegal arrests of citizens of other nations the U.S. has targeted as enemies, while no such arrests have taken place of employees of European, Canadian, or other companies doing business with Iran. So Hmong's case can also be seen as a case of selective prosecution, which is a defense available to Hmong, since if it is established, the courts can stay the charges and as it is considered unjust to charge some, but not others. For instance, we can cite the cases of Alex Saab, a Colombia-born Venezuelan businessman who was appointed as special envoy by the Republic of Venezuela, who was en route to Iran to buy medical supplies for the people of, Iran, of Venezuela when on June 12, 2020, he was detained in Cape Verde in Africa, thrown in jail, held in solitary confinement, psychologically tortured, and then finally got bail and released, although the courts in Cape Verde ordered his extradition to the United States. Fortunately for him, the African Bar Association and the Economic Community of West African Countries objected, and that has been stopped so far. We can also cite the case of Mun Chol Myung, a North Korean businessman who was also extradited from Myanmar to the United States in, May of, uh, in March of this year on similar charges that he was helping North Korea and all he was doing was helping North Korea obtain necessary supplies. Now, the connection between these cases for the Americans is that this, they, in these transactions, a swift bank clearing system was used to transfer funds. And in fact, this is the only claim to jurisdiction that the Americans attempt to make. And I shall deal with this a bit later. There have also been several Russians detained by the Americans under similar claims. We can't go in. We haven't got time to go into all those. So we see a pattern of illegal actions by the Americans against nations in which they in which they use people as pawns to affect their hostile foreign policy. It's also indicated by the fact that the United States chose to target an employee of a company instead of the company itself, which it usually does in these cases since the employees are acting under the company instructions and it's the company, the corporate entity, which is responsible for the actions of its employees. Now, <clears throat> I've been asked to say, to tell people, um, explain what extradition is, what is it? Extradition is simply the legal process by which one state seeks to have a person who committed a crime in that state or was convicted of a crime in that state return to that state from another state in which they are now located. This also takes place between provinces in Canada or states within the United States when someone has committed a crime in one jurisdiction but is located in another jurisdiction. Since all nations are sovereign, although the Americans try to deny that, such requests are made possible by treaties between various nations. And Meng's case is controlled by the extradition treaty between Canada and the United States. The extradition hearing is not a trial. The requesting state here, the American state, is only required to prove that it has a prima facie case against a person. That is a case that if not answered, could result in a conviction at trial. However, the arguments put forward by her legal team with respect to the substance of the charges about prosecutorial misconduct by the Americans, deceiving the Canadian court on the facts alleged, and what the real facts are, are all meant to establish that the U.S. does not have a prima facie case and that the allegations are political in nature. 
So that requires us to look at the extradition treaty and the controlling paragraph of that is Article 4, subparagraph C, which says, extradition shall not be granted in any of the following circumstances. Quote, when the offense in respect of which extradition is requested is of a political character, or the person whose extradition is requested proves that the extradition request has been made for the purpose of trying or punishing him or her for an offense of the above-mentioned character. It is important to note that the article makes it an obligation on the requested state, which is Canada in this case, to refuse a politically motivated request. The requested state does not have any discretion in the matter. It must refuse the request in such circumstances. Article 9 is also important because it states that the request for extradition shall be made through diplomatic channels. This is important, an important factor because the request is sent by the U.S. State Department to the Canadian Foreign Ministry. Therefore, the Minister of Foreign Affairs, the Minister of Justice, would have received copies of the request and had the right at that time to refuse the request, knowing as we do, and as they certainly did, that the request had no legitimate basis and was politically motivated. By refusing to reject the request at that point, and instead sending the file to the local federal crown prosecutor in British Columbia to be dealt with by the courts, the federal government arguably violated both the treaty and Meng's right of protection under Article 4 of the treaty. Indeed, the federal government can step in at any time under Article 4 to reject the request and free Meng. They can do it today. They can do it tonight. They can do so even if the judge in this case orders her extradition. I had a case once, oh, 30 years ago now, of a man accused of two murders in the United States who faced a gas chamber. The Americans succeeded in the extradition hearing, and he was ordered extradited by the court. But I was able to arrange a meeting in Ottawa with, with the then Minister of Justice, Mr. Bouchard at that time, and was successful in getting him to agree not to send the man to the United States unless they agreed not to seek the death penalty. And this fact was also stated in the famous letter of June 3rd, 2020, requesting Meng's immediate release in order to soothe tensions between Canada and China, which was signed by a number of notable lawyers and former ministers, including the former Minister of Justice Alan Rock, former Minister of Foreign Affairs Axworthy, the former Supreme Court judge and former professor of mine, Louise Arbor, the very learned Toronto Appeal lawyer, Brian Greenspan, and several other former ministers, law professors, advisors to Prime Minister Trudeau, and high UN officials such as Louise Frechette, who was at one time Deputy Secretary General of the United Nations. Though it's of interest that the uh, letter signed by those people um, only wanted the release of Hmong in order to obtain the release of the two Canadian Michaels, the Canadians arrested in China, so that Canada have, could have a more hostile policy against China but we'll leave that for others to comment on. Now, Meng's defense has, team has presented these arguments to the court and the government, but they've also challenged the entire basis of the US indictment against Meng. For the indictment contains several counts, most of which refer to the violations of the US sanctions against Iran, but several counts are couched in terms of fraud, but they're still relating to violations of the Iran sanctions, so-called. Now, the U.S. had to do this because Article 10 and Article 2 of the treaty also stipulate that the offense that they charge 
Mongwith must also be an offense in Canada and provable in law as a, such an offense. In other words, no one can be extradited to the U.S. from Canada unless the crime they are accused of is also a crime in Canada. Okay, fraud is a crime shared by both countries and is listed in the treaty. But where is the fraud in this case? This question requires us to look at several factors as the Meng defense has done. First of all, the U.S. indictment against Meng and Huawei and Skycom, a subsidiary of Huawei, of trying to violate the illegal U.S. sanctions against Iran is, is the, seems to be the principal charge. Canada has no such sanctions imposed against Iran at this point. That's the real essence of the matter. When one reads the U.S. indictment, it is clear the main thrust of the crimes alleged is ignoring the illegal U.S. sanctions against Iran, of trying to bypass those illegal sanctions, of ignoring the emergency powers given to the United States president under which the sanctions so-called were issued. The Canadian prosecutor and U.S. authorities tried to mask the fact that the central elements of the indictment concern the Iranian sanctions, and they do so by claiming that Ms. Meng misinformed a bank, in this case HSBC, Hong Kong Shanghai Bank Corporation, at a meeting which took place in Hong Kong, China, and did not disclose her company Huawei was going to use funds from the bank to engage in dealings with Iran. It now seems clear from the documents the defense has obtained that Ms. Meng and Huawei were in fact open about that, and HSB was informed of the true nature of the transaction, so in that no funds were obtained by false pretenses as alleged. Worse, it is clear that the U.S. authorities tried to mislead the Canadian authorities and the court by disclosing a doctored PowerPoint presentation by Meng to HSBC that had the information she gave to HSBC removed. In most cases in this country and in the common law system, most courts would consider that an attempt to deceive the court and would stay the proceedings at that point because then the prosecution and the, part, the party bringing that forward could not be trusted. And it's an abuse of power, abuse of the court proceedings to, to do that. The ordinary citizen will then ask, well, what is it to the United States what happened between a Chinese company and a British bank in a meeting in a Chinese city and when the bank has not complained to anyone that they were defrauded, when the officials of the bank have not been similarly charged, and no charges have been laid in China, which had jurisdiction over the matter, or in the UK, which arguably maybe had jurisdiction. But the US claims jurisdiction because they argue money which would have been transferred through the SWIFT banking system, which uh, would have flowed funds through their wires for a few milliseconds, and they would travel through wires in the United States. This, they claim, gives them jurisdiction over the matter. And they then claim that HSBC would sub be subject to heavy losses uh, due to the Im immense fines the Americans could impose on them for violating its illegal sanctions against Iran. In other words, their claim to jurisdiction is ephemeral at best and arguably non-existent. There has to be a substantial connection between the state laying the charge and criminal, the criminal activity alleged, they cannot make such an argument in this case. The constant attempt, in fact, by the Americans to impose American law on the world and to claim that it has worldwide jurisdiction fails in this case, as it must do in all cases. Otherwise, the United States would be master of the world and the sovereignty of other nations and the protection they afford to their citizens would completely vanish. 
Now, what losses would HSBC have arguably incurred? According to the Americans, they would have been hit by heavy fines, but HSBC can argue that they would not have suffered any losses at all. If HSB were subject to charges by the United States, they would simply argue that there is no case to answer because the American sanctions are illegal and therefore void and no court could make them pay an illegal fine. They did not and could not in law suffer any legal consequences. The fact is, though, the Americans would de facto try and do something. But this leads us to consider what the so-called sanctions are and why they are legal, why they use the word sanctions. Sanction implies that the, uh, the country impl uh, um, imposing them has some sort of superior right, some sort of superior moral uh, position over the nation they're imposing them, some sort of uh, higher authority over a nation they're imposing them on. And obviously, each nation is sovereign. The United States has no such uh, higher position, nor does Canada or any other nation. And the United States authorities are subject to, you, to American law. So we have to remember that Article 6 of the United States Constitution states in part that this Constitution and the laws of the United States, which shall be made in pursuance thereof, and all treaties made, or which shall be made under the authority of the United States, shall be the supreme law of the land. Now, the U.S. signed and ratified the U.N. Charter, and it is therefore part of the United States domestic law and cannot be overridden. The U.N. Charter reserves the right to impose sanctions or economic embargoes against the sovereign nation to the Security Council. No single state or group of states, no matter what they argue, had the right to abrogate to themselves the right given solely to the Security Council on Chapter 7 of the U.N. Charter uh, and Article 41 dealing with the ability of the Security Council to impose economic embargoes against a nation. Therefore, the sanctions the U.S. claims to have imposed are void under U.S. law. They do not legally exist. In fact, the Canadian government, by cooperating in pressing Impressing this American claim against Hmong and Huawei undermines its own sovereignty and protection of its own citizens. For if the U.S. false legal claims are accepted, then the United States could demand the extradition from Canada of any Canadian business person who engages in similar transactions with Iran when in Canada they could not be charged at all. The U.S. is adept at concocting fraud charges, and what would Canada's answer be then? Further, Canada, by cooperating with the U.S. in this case, is directly supporting the illegal U.S. sanctions against Iran, which also adds to the political nature of the case. Lastly, the Meng defense has presented a strong case that Ms. Meng's rights were violated when she was detained at Vancouver Airport on December 1st, 2018. Canadian law requires anyone detained by the authorities to be immediately informed that they are under arrest, the reason for their arrest or detention, their right to a lawyer, and their right to remain silent. She was not informed of her rights. Instead, her rights were continuously violated. She also had a right that her property not be subject to illegal search and seizure. Yet the sequence of events shows that she was held incommunicado for several hours, subjected to aggressive questioning, her mobile phone seized, was browbeaten into giving up her passwords, never told why she was being held, her right to remain silent, to have her property secure, etc. Unfortunately, breach of fundamental rights by the police in this country is all too frequent in many criminal cases, as most criminal lawyers are aware and have experience with. 
But in this case, these circumstances add to the evidence that her arrest was a political one. Because under the treaty, the Canadian authorities are not supposed to help the requesting state, in this case, the United States, find evidence to support their request for extradition. That's not their role. Their only role is to act on the U.S. arrest warrant and detain her, advise her of her rights, and leave it at that and for the courts to proceed. But instead, the RCMP and the CBSA acted as if they were agents of the American police. They may claim they were trying to find evidence of fraud, itself an improper action, but it's much more likely that they wanted to have access to her phone to obtain business information about Huawei. In other words, they were trying to steal information and pass it to the Americans to be used against Huawei and, of course, against Iran and China for political purposes. And now we see for several months the argument about an RCMP officer who was involved in her arrest and who could testify about all those circumstances refusing to come to testify and being protected by the government and, and so on. So <clears throat> in the end, it's clear that Ms. Meng's detention and arrest and the extradition request are politically motivated. And therefore, under the treaty, the government of Canada can and must release her. It's also clear that the accusations themselves, the cover of her being held hostage by the Americans and Canadians, have, has no basis either in fact or law. And on those grounds, the U.S. request must be rejected. So it's for all these reasons that we as citizens of Canada demand her release, because aside from the very serious economic and other consequences for Canada that have resulted and will result from her continued detention, it's the right thing to do. Um, yes, Chris, thank you so much for giving us the analysis of this case. There's, there's really, it's, it's quite amazing because this is such a complicated case. There's so many things to really understand. And, you know, you gave a very good job in a very short amount of time. I've got a few questions from, you know, the panel, uh, from the audience here that I'd like to ask. Um, somebody had asked, you know, what about Justin Trudeau's government? You know, could he have done more? You know, is this really on him? I mean, is, you know, you know, can, you know, in your, in your opinion, could he have done more? Yeah, they could have, they could have rejected the request as soon as it came across their desk. In fact, Trudeau states that he was, he discussed the matter before the request was formally sent through with senior uh, American officials. And he could have told them at that time, I don't bother sending it. We'll reject it as other nations did mm -hmm. and warned Meng among of uh, the fact that the Americans were out pursuing her. Canada could have done the same thing long before the arrest was sent through and they could have rejected it at the time it came through because when it came through, it had to go through, as I say, the ministry of foreign affairs and the minister of justice would have to have seen it. So it must've been discussed in cabinet <laughs> and it could not have not been discussed in cabinet. Huawei is a major technological company in the world and right. supplies much equipment here. And she is a very important official of that company. And they knew that the ramifications and consequences for her arrest would be enormous. So that had to have been discussed in cabinet. And all the cabinet officials could have agreed with Trudeau to reject the request. So obviously, they willingly uh, agreed to follow through with the American request, or there was pre heavy pressure put on them, which they're not revealing to us, which forced them to. But if they wanted us to be aware and be transparent, they should be either, if they willingly did it, they should tell us why they willingly did it. And if they were forced to do it, what pressure, they should tell the Canadian people what pressure was exerted upon them to do so. 
Yeah, very good. Very good question. Uh, I have another question. What about when Meng um, is released? You know, there, I think there's a lot of people, are, you know, we're hoping obviously she's going to get released. Is there a situation where that she could sue the Canadian government, you know, for this two and a half years of her life that she's basically been under house arrest? Is there a yeah. process for that? Yeah, she could. And in fact, I understand that Huawei itself has sued Canada and the BC courts uh, some months ago. I'm not sure where that civil suit stands right now. I'm not involved right. in that. Right. I haven't followed it too much, but I know where they, they did file a claim for damages for that. Okay. And but she could also personally sue for um, um, illegal detention, unlawful detention, arbitrary detention. If she, if, she, if she were to sue, would it just be Canada or could it also be, you know, would it be U.S. and Canada, U.S., Canada? Well, she, her, her rights were violated in, in, in Canada, so she could sue for a violation of various rights and her treatment here and so on. Okay. Arguably, she, Huawei and, and she could also file a law, a suit in the United States because Huawei has offices in the United States. Correct. Um, that That's a complicated discussion of conflict in laws, and we'd take a long time to get around that. For sure. Yeah, I, th I think just a couple of people had asked, you know, if there is, you know, um, obviously, I think a lot of us are just saying, you know, wow, this has, you know, been a long time for her to be here. And I mean, it's obviously costing her a lot of money and security right. and, you know, a lot of fees for her to, you know, to go through this entire process. Yeah. So, yeah, I think we're really interested to know that. Uh, Trudeau could have done more. It certainly went. I'm going to touch on that a little bit later when I come on talking about actually the extradition request, how that was handled into the Trudeau office. That was quite an interesting thing. Um, that's excellent. Uh, Chris, I, I really appreciate you you know, coming on board, what are you, what are you, what are you anticipating for August? I mean, with this, there's, you know, going to be some new evidence that has been, you know, that has been admitted. I think this was a really big, you know, um, you know, update to the cases that very surprisingly, I know a lot of the local reporters here in Vancouver, they did not actually think that the judge or chief justice, uh, Holmes, you know, would actually extend this. Um, and then very surprisingly, she said, yeah, we're going to accept this new evidence in. We're going to go ahead and give some time for Mung's legal team to go ahead and go through this evidence. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we're going to resume in August. So it's quite a big delay. What is your feelings on that? It's hard to read judges like that. I mean, you can you can hope that because of her delay that she's being accommodating, therefore she might be in favor of Mung's position and let her go. Right. It can also be argued as... <laughs> trial lawyers have a lot of experience with judges trying to make themselves look fair so they can hit somebody hard with a hammer at the end. Yeah. And they can say, well, I did everything I could in a fair manner. Um, so it's hard to read what Justice Holmes is thinking or how she's going to react at the end of the case. I hope that she follows the law and applies it correctly and releases Miss Mum. Chris, I've got a question for you. I think we're going to address this in the panel. What is your feeling with the two Michaels? You know, I think that's an important thing that we need to bring up, you know, from your perspective. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, a lot of people do want to, add, you know, talk about that. Can you share some of your insights there? Well, it's hard to say, to know what to say about the two Michaels, because the Canadian government is very quiet on what they were doing in China. Mm -hmm. And I must assume that because they have, the consular officials have meetings with them in China, that they've been told by the two Michaels what the charges are, the specifics of the charges against them are. But they're not revealing that to us. And mm -hmm. the Chinese don't because it's state security law. As in Canada, in treason trials, uh, the actual evidence is not shown to the public. There's a recent naval officer in Halifax who's charged with supplying information to the Russians. Um, so that's common in both systems. So we don't know what the actual basis of the charges are. 
And the, the Chinese claim that they has, their arrest was, has nothing to do with Meng's arrest, that they would, would have been arrested in any event. One can connect them in time and uh, draw a conclusion. But that's what their position is. Canada says that, of course, there was a real, retaliation for Meng. Right. All right. <clears throat> but it's quite clear that if Meng is not, re- uh, not released, I don't think China's going to be too, uh, too ready to release the two Michaels. If they were, I mean, supposing uh, the Chinese allegations were correct and they were spying in some sort of way, normally there's an exchange of spies between countries and people are returned. Right. Um, but if Canada keeps with this position, that, that process may not take place. So we do not know what's going to happen with them. I think it's a, a wrong assumption to conclude that you can only support Meng's case in order to achieve the release of the two Michaels. Meng's case stands by itself. She was arrested illegally without any basis for the charges under illegal laws imposed by the Americans against the world. Those laws do not exist. It's a different case. What the, 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 the treason charge, the spy charge the Chinese have exist, I don't know what the facts are, whether they're right. guilty or not. We can't say. You're listening to Free Meng Wanzhou, a panel discussion, which took place in May of 2021. This program is a feature on the Global Research News Hour, a show funded by the Center for Research on Globalization and produced in collaboration with campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg. The show is also broadcast on other community radio stations across Canada and the United States and available for streaming or download at the site globalresearch.ca. My name is Michael Welch. Our next speaker is Sheila Show. She's a researcher, a data scientist, and community organizer, a second-generation Chinese-American who was raised in San Francisco, California, Irvine, and the University of Hong Kong. She's a tireless advocate for communities of color and the co-founder of the organization Pivot to Peace. It is evident, based on the previous talk, that Meng Wanzhou's arrest and kidnapping is not just about one CFO of a major corporation, nor some bogus allegations about fraud. It is yet another despicable move in the ever-growing policies of aggression on China by the United States and its partners in the Five Eyes Alliance. And as these proceedings unfold, it becomes evident the political motivations, as established before, of Meng's arrest, right? Turning this legal case into a political theater of the absurd. And Meng, a Chinese woman, having lost all of her liberties for over two years now, I think three years, um, has been caught in the crossfire of rising U.S.-China tensions. And it is time that she be freed from these baseless allegations and be allowed to return home. That is the demand. And that is why we are having this this webinar. And just to recap, Meng's arrest in 2018 happened during the thick of the U.S.-China trade war. And Trump weaponized reactionary, hyper-nationalist tactics to place blame on China for the economic perils facing the United States here. But the truth is, the greater threat felt by the U.S. is China and Chinese corporations, their ability to outcompete the U.S. in the world free market. And what happened? China was punished by the U.S. for this because China beat the U.S. at its own game. So the demonizing of Huawei and the bogus arrests of Meng Wanzhou is meant to cripple Huawei and Huawei's ability to compete with U.S. corporations. 
And Huawei, facing pressure from the US, is now forced to reinvent itself to overcome the banning of its technology. Many major companies and countries rely on Huawei technology, which provides the best and most economic way to bring technology to the world stage, to the world community. Countries that are now dismantling their 5G installations are facing major economic consequences and, uh, and barriers to technological development. But who pays the price for this, right? Not the ruling elites of these countries, not government officials, but everyday working citizens, right? Meng Wanzhou's illegal kidnapping is really the tip of the iceberg in a monumental effort by the US to contain China's growth and re-impoverish its, its citizens. So Meng is caught in the US's struggle for world dominance and Canada is playing fodder to such a ploy. And as for Huawei, the real target, it is only a matter of time that Huawei will bounce back and the US uh, and its plan of isolation will fail. And the ill effect of the ban on Huawei is already seen here in the US. The denial of semiconductor chips to Huawei ended in a huge shortage of chips to the American auto industries, resulting in a mass canceling of auto productions, a major economy in the US. But the Meng Wanzhou saga will continue to inflict moral wounds on America's self-righteousness and lessen Biden's ability to convince our allies that they should follow him on the human rights trail. The anti-China propaganda in the US is now so profound that the Biden administration, in an effort to convince Republicans to support his far-reaching economic reforms for working class and poor people in the US, has framed their adoption by the US Congress as necessary to beat China. He even argues that the Republicans need to pass legislation providing childcare as a necessary part of the global competition with China. This is, you know, Crazy. I'm, I mean, this, I'm not kidding about this. And this was exactly the language Biden used when speaking before both houses of, co of Congress about why the U.S. needed to adopt economic and social reforms, all in the name of competing with China, instead of the fact that U.S. citizens just deserve this. And obviously, Biden is making the case that even on the domestic front, when it comes to taking care of the needs of the working people, the U.S. appears to be failing in the same year that China seems to be succeeding in stopping the COVID spread in its country. And not to mention that the Chinese economy bounced back strongly. In the U.S., on the other hand, um, more than half a million Americans died from COVID, um, many of which could have been prevented. Uh, 61 million of us lost our jobs. 100,000 small businesses went bankrupt. And vast parts of the, the U.S. population lost their entire savings. Yet, in the words of Biden, at his first speech at the joint session of Congress, he says, quote, we're in a competition with China and other countries to win the 21st century, end quote. But what are we competing for? Why are we shoring up the entire country's powers and resources, as well as Canada's, to keep Meng Wanzhou in captivity? all in an, an attempt to destroy a thriving Chinese technology corporation that has beat U.S. corporations at their own game. Biden's whopping $715 billion Pentagon budget is, larger, is a larger military budget than all top 10 countries, including China, combined. 
surely these funds are used to mount this continued campaign against China. And even a tiny sliver of this budget could just go a long way to ensure that the proposed reforms get passed. And in my mind, if we actually wanted to compete for the 21st century, wouldn't that mean a world without war? Wouldn't that mean a world of peaceful coexistence? A world where taking hostages and kidnapping is frowned upon and denounced as inhumane, where the exorbitant amount of funds we spend, the US spends on war, would instead be used to address the many ills of society. So the double standard in Min Wanzhou's case and her arrest calls into question, on what basis does the United States have for being the champion of human rights? You know, one only needs to look at the record of U.S. meddling in other countries' affairs around the world, or the jailing of, of WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange, or whistleblower Chelsea Manning, and countless of many others to know that the U.S. has really no moral ground to speak on human rights violations, and Meng Wanzhou is a clear example of that. Yet, the U.S. has concocted a fantastical narrative about alleged human rights violations at the hands of the Chinese government, such that there is no room to debate otherwise. We've seen this play out in the discussions about Hong Kong, about Tibet, about Xinjiang. And by beating the drum of human rights without credible evidence, this leaves really no room for a rational, fair, or balanced way to discuss the facts, nor allow the public to fully understand these issues. But the politicians from both parties, um, with the help of mainstream media, continue to devise a narrative that casts China as the evil country that is violating human rights. And the US government is lining up all of its allies to kind of march this beat. These are all precursors to war. Um, you know, I've seen this in my lifetime. I think many of us have. We've seen this method used before. It is a tried and true method. And we must urge our friends, our families and colleagues, peers to take this information in with a critical eye because without it, we may repeat the same mistakes of allowing the catastrophic war on terror to happen, right? A war that sucked all of our resources, enlisted and endangered our citizens only to destroy entire societies and kill innocent civilians of these countries, all for securing oil for the rich. So the consequences of major power conflicts affect not only the people in China, but everyone around the world. The all-out bashing of China has unleashed an uncontainable phenomenon of racist violence against Asians in North America. And as Cyrus mentioned in the beginning, right, Vancouver was recently named the city with the highest reported counts of hate crimes against Asians. And this is something that Pivot to Peace, my organization, is actively fighting here in the U.S. And that's why it is critical that we address the issue of Meng's arrest, not as an isolated event, but a strategic move in the greater geopolitical context. It is also important to remember that Meng Wanzhou is a person, is a human being, is a woman who is living in isolation from her own country with, the, with her ankle monitor facing charges that could possibly land her a long-term prison sentence to be served in a U.S. federal penitentiary. She is a political prisoner, subject of human rights violations by two big superpowers, the U.S. and Canada, who sees her merely as a pawn in a chess game. And they're no different from bullies on the school ground, quite frankly. It is critical that we mobilize the voices that say no to war and build a mass movement.
that brings this issue of no new Cold War to the forefront. And more importantly, we need to sustain a movement that also demands that Meng Wanzhou be freed. It is a great honor to be a part of this panel discussion. I am happy to answer any questions. Thank you so much. Sheila, thanks so much for your, um, you know, fantastic overview there. And I think I think you brought you really hit on some really good points there. And I think one of the one of the things that we always hear about with China is human rights. Uh, you know, that is a common thing that we always hear people talking about. Uh, you know, what about what about China's human rights record? And I think what's what's difficult in this in relation is is. I think we look at it from the Chinese perspective. Um, you know, I think that China has actually done a lot of great things over the, especially in the last 30 years to improve human rights. I mean, I think when you look at, you know, 750 million people lifted from poverty into the middle class, you know, providing better infrastructure, better lives, better jobs, better future. Um, this is, these are all parts of human rights. Um, in addition, I think you brought up some good points about the United States. I mean, we know that you know, the United States, I mean, we don't have a great track record of human rights in our country. Um, I mean, we can look at the Middle East, we can look at our history there over the last 20 years. Uh, I mean, even going back to the Vietnam, Vietnam War, um, you know, the Korean War, I mean, there's been a tremendous amount of human rights violations, even the, unfortunately, the conflict right now happening between Israel and Palestine, very difficult to see, very difficult to see. Um, <clears throat> tell us a little bit about more your organization. Pivot to Peace and the work that you're specifically doing. Yeah, you know, Pivot to Peace, we formed almost uh, exactly a year ago uh, when, uh, basically around the time that I emailed you, Cyrus, to okay. try to shore up endorsers to be a part of um, and support this movement. But, you know, we are a group of concerned Americans who are watching our government uh, chase down China and, you know, take our resources again. <clears throat> and basically encircling China as a precursor to war, right? And how is that affecting us as Americans? And for me, and many of us in Pivot to Peace, Chinese Americans, right? Um, even before COVID, um, a group of us got together and recognized the fact that anti-Chinese anti racism was on the rise. Um, you know, we see Chinese researchers, Chinese students um, get arrested for so-called espionage. Right, so uh, we felt that it was really important to create this organization where we bring light this issue of this new Cold War that's shoring up all of our resources and marching us towards yet another catastrophic, you know, potential confrontation against a major country that we have no business targeting. And so, yeah, I mean, we we started this organization, and and, and I do feel that the unique thing about Pivot to Peace is that we are truly from the grassroots. Um, many of us um, started out in the anti-war movement in, um, in the Iraq war. And then there's also a wing of us that are established in the Chinese American community. So I really see us as the bridging of these two communities from the grassroots level to push forward this, this narrative that we are united against this new Cold War. So that's what we're up to now. Fantastic. Fantastic. And I do think that that is, you know, you know, what we've looked at over the last 18 months is we've seen China victimized in so many different ways where everything, you know, from, I mean, look at the U.S. government, you know, TikTok is, is, you know, is a tool. WeChat, you know, we need to ban Chinese students. And I was reading that, you know, in the last few years, I think 10% of United States patents 
you know, come from, you know, inventors with Chinese surnames. So essentially, you know, we, you know, the United States, a big part of the reason that we're successful is that we've had, you know, some of the best and brightest minds from China come and, and you know, contribute to our society. Uh, one of my favorite stories is Eric Yuan, you know, who, you know, who is the CEO of Zoom. All of us are very familiar with Zoom now, of course, you know, because of COVID. I mean, he he tried he applied, I think, seven or eight times to get the visa to come to America, was rejected, eventually came, came to America, studied here, you know, went on to found Zoom Communications. He's a billionaire now. I mean, he's a very successful CEO, um, you know, and he came from China, you know, and, and that was an interesting thing. When you look at China, you know, they've been sending their brightest minds. Uh, only the brightest minds in China were able to go outside of the country to study abroad um, you know, if you were from China in the 80s and 90s and you went abroad, you probably didn't return back to China. You would have immigrated to America. You would have become an American citizen like Eric Yuan. You would have had your three children born in America. You know, you are contributing so much. And I think that is what's really being lost here is that we are a melting pot, you know, as uh, of all these different cultures. That's what makes us American is so great. Um, you know, this is a, a Canadian event, you know, but, you know, you and I are both American. So, you know, that's a beautiful thing. You know, my wife is Chinese. We have three, you know, mixed racial uh, children. I think it's an absolutely beautiful thing. You know, I'm passionate about America, Canada, you know, just being these countries that embrace diversity. And I think that's something that really needs to be said. When we were in the thick of COVID and it feels like in the US, it feels like we're starting to overcome it, but I know that's not the truth for a lot of global South nations and a lot of developing nations. So I wanna be conscious of that. But when we were in the thick of this and we were just watching China defeat COVID, um, that, that really speaks to the sentiment of like, what could we have accomplished if our countries all work together? If we collaborated Absolutely. instead of competing, right? Instead of watching the US government and mainstream media continuously bash and demonize China for for something that China handled quite well. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, I just wanted to make that point that um, collaboration, cooperation is what we need, not, not war and confrontation. No, absolutely. I mean, I think when you look at other important issues, Sheila, is, you know, for example, uh, climate change, you know, like we know that this is an issue it needs to be solved. There's no way that you could possibly solve this issue in the world unless you have the number one and number two polluters in the world, US and China, coming together and working in this strategic way. Um, you know, when that happens, you know, we can solve climate change. You know, I think if if China and the US, if I mean, if we put all of our money, our resources, our, our scientists, our, our brilliant minds from both countries together, I'm pretty sure we could cure cancer in the next 10 years. I mean, if we, you know, if we really brought them together, and, and I think it's, it's just very sad when you've seen, you know, pretty much everything is, you know, be, become, uh, you know, just demonized and everything. I mean, I, I saw the other day, for example, you know, China is celebrating uh, its Navy is celebrating an anniversary. And they, they came out with, I think, a 72 year anniversary, you know, video of China's Navy fleet. And, you know, everyone was like, look at this propaganda from China. You know, this is this is terrible. How can they be promoting this? And I'm like, I'm from America. Like all we do is have commercials about our military and how great we are. Like that's, that is like the fundamental thing about, you know, being American is like, remember the Patriots, you know, remember your, your servicemen, remember, you know, they, they fought for your freedom. Um, I don't right. think there's really anything, you know, propaganda about it. I mean, unless we want to call both sides propaganda, but I think it's just, you know, like there, there's a lot of reasons why Chinese people are very proud of their country. I mean, I think, you know, I know a tremendous amount of expats and Chinese in China right now, they're so happy with the way their government, you know, handled COVID-19. Here in Vancouver, we had Chinese citizens that were, you know, permanent residents here in Vancouver that were purchasing, 
you know, private jets, I mean, or sorry, purchasing a ticket on a private jet to get back to China and saying, you know, I don't feel confident in, you know, Western society that they can handle COVID. I want to go back to China. Like I, they have it under control. And, you know, it's just interesting to see the two countries and how they, you know, handled handled COVID. And I think, you know, there's some frustration there, right? I mean, you know, almost like, you know, that's not fair. Why is China already, you know, they were the first ones in. Why are they the first ones out? You know, but we also mm -hmm. have to look at, you know, what did they do? You know, they did something very different than us. And so, you know, that shouldn't be really a jealousy, but maybe an opportunity to learn from. I think you look exactly. at seeing, you know, you look at China and how they have sent these vaccines, you know, the uh, personal protection equipment. I mean, they were donating so much all over the world um, and especially to these under, you know, serviced areas, you know, throughout Africa and, you know, many nations around the world. So I think there's, you know, a great opportunity, you know, to cooperate. You know, I've, I've really enjoyed hosting this event today because I believe that when we look at all of these events, you know, there's it's, it's amazing how much our world has shifted over the past, you know, 18 to 24 months and how, you know, I, I first went to China in 2007 and it was amazing because at that time, you know, the United States, you know, Canada, uh, China, you know, they were growing so fast together. You know, there was many Canadian and American companies going into China, doing business. There was a great relationship, you know, between these two. And, you know, from 2007 to 2013, the years that I was living in Shanghai, you know, this was a really booming time for China's economy. I mean, it was really booming and it was really because of fostering these relationships with other countries around the world. I, I say this all the time when people say, you know, Cyrus, we should boycott everything made in China. Well, you know, the very American or the Western way of life that we come to enjoy, the equipment that we're using to live stream here. I mean, you look at Huawei, for example, and we're going to tie this back into Meng Wanzhou. You look at Huawei, you know, they have some amazing technology, the technology that's literally changing, you know, the world. And there's an important thing that I wanted to bring up. Um, you know, there was a, a letter written from Mark Warner and Marco Rubio, two United States senators, and it was actually sent to Prime Minister Justin Trudeau about six weeks before Meng's arrest. And in this letter, it basically said, you know, Prime Minister Trudeau, Huawei is a Chinese company. We know that essentially there's no Chinese company that is not independent of the Chinese government. You know, you need to ban Huawei in, in Canada and you need to make sure that, you know, you're supporting American you know, companies. And, you know, we need to work together to build our own 5G network because we can't trust, you know, Huawei. The interesting thing is, is that Huawei has done a tremendous amount for the country of Canada. You know, they have moved a research and development center from Silicon Valley to Markham, Ontario. Uh, there's 400 people that work in that R&D center. There's over 1,300 jobs that, you know, here, you know, working for Huawei, you know, in Canada. These are, you know, really high level jobs, you know, engineers, people that are working on this, uh, you know, that are contributing, you know, Huawei is contributing to the Canadian economy. The other thing that's really interesting is, is, you know, Canada has had a difficult history with its First Nations, the indigenous people in Canada. Huawei is the one that voluntarily you know, was building some of the infrastructure and networks to improve, you know, their communications. You know, that was Huawei coming in here. And this is amazing what we see when you actually study Huawei and you see the initiatives that they're taking in Africa to really help these small, underprivileged third world countries, you know, connect to the Internet. You know, and, and there's an amazing statistic about Huawei, you know, 80 percent of the top 50 telecommunication companies in the world, you know, have a relationship and a partnership with Huawei, are using their technology, are using their equipment. You know, they have done an amazing job, um, you know, with their with their equipment. The other thing that's interesting as well is you look at Huawei and, you know, they're always they're, they're always 
you know, very complimentative towards other companies. For example, they have a great respect for Apple. Actually, they, you know, even the, even, even Meng Wanzhou, when she was arrested, she had an Apple phone and it's not like, well, we can't support Apple. It's, they make great products too. Like we have a lot of respect for Apple. You know, we, we realized that, you know, like Coke and Pepsi, there can be multiple brands competing. You know, you know, Huawei last year became the number one smartphone manufacturer in the world as far as the number of units that were distributed. Um, you know, they have a great success. But guess who's also doing very well in China? Apple. They sold a tremendous amount of, of units. So it's not about trying to take down one. You know, there's room for many companies to exist. And the reality is, is that you need competition in order to make yourself better. You know, I mean, you, even when you think of sports, you know, Michael Jordan, why was he so good? Because he competed against amazing other athletes that pushed him to become better. And this is what I think we need to really, uh, you know, go back into it. There's nothing wrong with having a competitor like Huawei. You know, they're going to push you to more innovation and to make better products. This is what's going to happen with Huawei. When the United States sanctions them, look at what they are doing right now. They are basically saying, well, we need to reinvent ourselves. This is a tough time. I'm not going to lie about it. It's a difficult time. But we are going to be able to rise up again. We're going to focus because, again, cell phones is not our bread and butter. It's actually infrastructure. It's 5G technology. It's many different things. They're a huge company. They spent you know, 19 billion US dollars in research and development last year. There's arguments that are made, oh, Huawei, all they do is copy Apple. Not a chance. When you're spending 19 billion US dollars in R&D, you're leading the way. There's a reason why Shenzhen is the first city in the world to be wall-to-wall -wall 5G. Why the metro system in Shenzhen is running on 5G. Why you know this new... Um, digital currency that is being launched in China. You know, this is this is a, a fantastic technology. It all has to do with 5G technology, blockchain, all of this works together. And this is why companies like this are so important. So I, I just want people to really understand this is I'm trying to tie this back in with the Huawei situation. You know, we, you know, our our world is a better world with a better relationship with China. You know, I firmly believe that China is inventing the technology that is going to impact and change the world for the better. And this is why I believe that, you know, I, I like to refer this to as a China mirage. Um, this is this is one of the best books that I've ever read about the United States and China. This is called The China Mirage. It's from author James Bradley. Um, I've, I've read this book extensively. And in fact, I'm going to be making a series of videos this summer about this book and the lessons that I've learned from this book. But essentially, you know, when you go back and this is why I thought May's presentation was so important. You need to go back in history and understand this. You know, Franklin Delano Roosevelt and Delano, uh, his grandfather made a tremendous, tremendous amount of money in the opium trade in China. Uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt was lived a very lavish lifestyle. It was all money that he inherited. He had spent his entire life in the public sector. Um, you do not make a large salary if you are working as a governor or a president of the United States. You don't earn a large salary. United States president, $400,000 a year roughly is the salary. You're not making a lot of money. You're making other money from other ventures. The, the Delano Roosevelt family had a tremendous amount of money that they had accumulated from you know, drug dealing in China. And the interesting thing was is that when Franklin Delano Roosevelt was president, he had no idea of what was going on in China. And he firmly believed that he said, you know, China is going to be the next democratic uh, Christian nation. You know, we're going to essentially colonize them. They will become our greatest um, ally and they will learn to be exactly like us. And the interesting thing was, is, you know, Chairman Mao had reached out to America, you know, and he had said, you know, I want to build a relationship with America. And, you know, Delano Roosevelt said, Chairman who? 
who is this guy? He's, he's nobody. We're not even going to pay attention to this guy. And you can see from history how they misguided and completely miscalculated what was going on with China. And, you know, ultimately, the, you know, America lost a tremendous amount of face in China because they didn't understand what was going on, on the ground. This is what's happening right now is I firmly believe that you know, China is inventing the future of our world and that we strongly need a partnership with China if, you know, or else we're going to be left behind. And I think this is where you see it. And this is what I do. A lot of my channel is talking about the business side of this. Talk to any expat that is on the ground in China, you know, working with these international companies over there. It's incredible, you know, the innovation and everything is like, if you're in digital marketing, if you are in financial technology, you have to go to China. That's where the future is right now. This is if you want to see what we're going to be like ten years from now, go to Shenzhen. That's what that's what's being experimented right now. Um, and again, the China's digital currency, fascinating stuff. And and again, that's and that is going to really impact the future of our world. China is going to be you know responsible for that as the first major nation to take that on. Um, Everybody, I've got about uh, five minutes left. We're, we're running a, over a little bit. I just want to say uh, I'm going to touch on, on a couple key things from the Meng Wanzhou thing, um, you know, and kind of circle back to what Chris had mentioned earlier. One of the things that he said is, and this is this is very important. What I want people to to understand, you know, Meng Wanzhou. It's it's very unusual for you know the government to go after an individual. Most definitely, it is you know, the company that is normally getting fined. For example, in 2011, JP Morgan was fined $88 million fines for violating U.S. sanctions against Cuba, Iran, and Sudan, uh, but they didn't take the CEO. They fined the company. Now, it, what, they're not alone. Since 2010, there has been many banks, the Bank of Brazil, America, Guam, Moscow, Tokyo, Barclays, BNB, Paribas, um, you know, the uh, Deutsche Bank, HSBC, Abu Dhabi, Pakistan, all of these banks have been, have been found guilty, you know, from the United States, you know, sanctions and have been fined, you know, so this is not um, a rare thing. It's happened dozens and dozens of times in the last decade. And but not one other case has there been where a CEO has been, or, you know, a high level executive has been taken off the plane and arrested. And this is something that, you know, is a huge red flag. And I think the other thing is, is that we've made it, you know, the Canadian government has made a mistake, you know, in, in um, you know, as far as how they've handled this. And unfortunately, this has really been a difficult time, I think, for Can Canadians, because, you know, I know that, you know, this is a battle between the United States and China. Unfortunately, Canada is really stuck in the middle. I think all of us, we want to see this be resolved as soon as possible. You just heard a panel discussion on free Meng Wanzhou. Featured on the panel were Christopher Black, Sheila Chow, and the moderator and host, Cyrus Jansen. It was presented on May 21, 2021. The event was sponsored by the Canada-China Council for Cooperation and Development, the Canadian Foreign Policy Institute, the Canadian Peace Congress, the Hamilton Coalition to Stop the War, and the International Action Centre. You can see the entire discussion over YouTube on the channel Cyrus. Jansen. You've been tuned to the Global Research News Hour, a show funded by the Center for Research on Globalization and produced in collaboration with campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg, unoccupied Anishinaabegaki, the homeland of the Metis and the historical territory of the Nahiwak and the Nakota. The show airs on other radio stations across Canada and the United States and is available for streaming or download at the site globalresearch.ca. To leave feedback on the show, please email globalresearchnewshour at gmail.com. Music for this week's broadcast is Shifting Sands by Purple Planet Music, accessible on the site purple-planet.com. 
I've been your host and producer, Michael Welch. Thank you once again for joining us.